just visiting with us, this is your first time here, welcome to Salt Church. My name's Mike, I'm uh, the pastor here at church, great to have you here with us. Uh, this morning we're working our way through the Bible in 10 talks and uh, we're up to talk number, talk number two this morning, easy for me to say. If you've got your Bible there, could you keep it open at Genesis 3, that would be most helpful. After church this morning, if you're thinking about getting baptised or you've got some questions about baptism and you want to ask them of me, come and see uh, me and Chris uh, this morning. We'll be up front, just want to have a chat with you about baptism, if that's something that you'd like to do uh, at our church picnic coming up in a couple of weeks' time. <clears throat> what I'd like us to do together is to spend a moment just bringing our thoughts to God, to gather the thoughts of the week, the things that are occupying our mind, the busyness of the day, just to come before God together in a moment of relative quiet to still our hearts it's kind of like blowing the leaves off the driveway just to clear the space so that we can come before our God and hear him speak to us this morning so we're going to take a minute now and then I'm going to pray and then thank you for the grace that you've shown us the the undeserved love and forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus and as we wrestle this morning with the problem of evil and suffering would you remind us again that you're a gracious and kind God who does not give us what we deserve uh, please help us now to hear your word. Uh, help me to speak in a way that's faithful and clear and interesting, for we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The problem of evil and suffering. It's been described as the Achilles heel of our faith, an issue on which people will reject Christianity. It's a philosophical and theological problem debated by theologians and philosophers and university students for centuries. How do you reconcile a world of evil and suffering with an omnipotent, omniscient and benevolent God? Or put more simply, why does God allow suffering? The argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, he could prevent evil and suffering. If God is all-knowing, he would know about evil and suffering in the world. If God is all-good, he would want to prevent evil and suffering. And yet still... Evil and suffering exist and so either God is not all-powerful or God is not all-knowing or God is not all-good because you cannot deny the presence of evil and suffering in the world. How do you account for the problem of evil and suffering? How do you make peace with it? How would you answer someone who had questions about suffering? This morning we're continuing our teaching series on how the whole Bible fits together. God's story from Genesis in the beginning to Revelation in the end. It's the story of creation and redemption and new creation. You see, the Bible is telling us one story, friends, but that doesn't mean that story is a myth or make-believe or a fairy tale. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that this is God's world. It's God's world because God made it. God is maker and God is king. And God made us to be in relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with one another, relationship with his creation. Relationships are the very reason for our existence. We are made to be relational. And the whole purpose of life is relationship. It provides meaning and identity, purpose and value to our lives. But for all of creation's glory and beauty and splendor, for all that's very good about God's good world and all that's very good about being God's image bearers, by the end of Genesis 3, we find ourselves outside of Eden's garden, 
we're alone in the world, we're a long way from home. Let's see how we ended up there. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. You got your Bible there? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's a well-known passage, but the first thing I want us to notice there in verse 1 is the word garden. The word garden in the Greek Old Testament, also known as the Septuagint, the word for garden is the word paradisios, where we get our word paradise from. And the Bible describes Eden as a paradise. Eden, the place where God dwells with humanity, God dwells with the man that he made together in the paradise that God has made for us to dwell in. Now friends, that's really important information. I want you to be aware of it. Notice for now that Eden is called paradise, the place where God dwells with us. The other thing I want you to see there in verse 1 is probably something that you've already noticed and that is it doesn't really sound like a paradise anymore, this garden, because now there's a talking snake in it. Listen, it'd be really easy to get sidetracked here, wouldn't it, by the presence of a talking snake. Easy to get lost in asking questions, all the details and the credibility of this story. How did the talking snake get there? Where did the talking snake come from? Do snakes actually talk? Whenever we see a snake out in the bush, we tend to back off a little. But if you heard a talking snake, I reckon you'd run for your life. But friends, the devil is always in the details, isn't it? Literally, literally now, in these literary details, he wants you to be sidetracked by the talking snake. So you start asking the wrong questions of the Bible. He's crafty like that, the evil one, this fast-talking serpent. And that's the whole point of him being here. The possibility and the likelihood of a talking snake now has us questioning the credibility of God's word for ourselves, the very problem that took place in the garden. You see, that's what he does with his questions. And already we're distracted from the main point of the passage. Ever so subtly, the snake questions God's authority and we start questioning God's word as well. His very existence puts distance between God and the man and now an enormous gulf appears between God and his, between man and his creator. See it there, chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? In the very same verse, the creator is called Lord God, but this crafty serpent now simply calls him God. It's a subtle difference from Lord God to God, but it's an important one. God as Lord defined their relationship together between man and his maker, the maker who ruled over humanity as their king. When we call God Lord, there is an intimacy in the relationship between maker and mankind. God, not only disinterest, God is not some disinterested cosmic creator. The Lord God rules over his creation as a generous king. But the subtle difference of simply calling him God creates separation now between the creator and his creation. The serpent begins to redefine the entire relationship that we have with God. He's good at that, by the way, this crafty serpent. Like a teenager who is embarrassed by their parents, creation begins to ignore its own creator. Eve 
quickly picks up on his lead there in verse 3 and now she calls her creator God, not the Lord. The creator is reduced to being a peer. God viewed as an equal, as a colleague now, as a mere contemporary of the humans. You see, this isn't just about simply leaving out a word. Intimacy has now been broken. The parameters of their relationship have been breached. This isn't about over-familiarity, something that Australians are very good at. No, friends, creation is now in full-blown revolt against its creator and we haven't even eaten anything yet. The serpent leaves out a significant word, but the woman now adds a few words of her own. Before putting the fruit into her own mouth, she's putting words into God's. Look there, verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But God never said that, did he? That's not what God said. Maybe Eve's modernised the translation for us. Maybe she's putting it into her own words. Eve's rendering out the original text for herself. It isn't word for word. It's not even thought for thought. Here's what God really said. Genesis 2 verse 16. You got your Bible there? And the Lord God commanded, notice that, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. No MC hammer here, friends. God said nothing about touching it. The Lord didn't say, don't touch this. He said, don't eat of it or you'll certainly die. Before they've even eaten of the tree, they've already questioned God's goodness to them, already questioned his authority over them, already questioning their place in this relationship now, already questioning their rely- the reliability of his word. And that's where sin starts with us too, isn't it? Isn't it? It starts within our hearts before we act upon it. Questioning the authority of God's word. Questioning God's goodness to us. Questioning his ability to be in control. But the serpent's only too happy to clear up any confusion that you might have. Happy to tell you exactly what it is that you want to hear. Happy to make the divide between us and God even bigger than it was before. No, you will not surely die, he promises Eve, but you'll be like God knowing good and evil. But we were already made to be like God, weren't we? Already made to bear his image, already made to rule over his creation. Before she even touches the forbidden tree, Eve exchanges God's promises For the snake's promises, see that there, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and then she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You remember back in Genesis 1 and 2, it was God who saw the things that was good. It was God who determined good in the beginning but here now in Genesis 3 Eve is doing that Eve saw that the fruit was good she's put herself in the place of God she's made herself equal to being God 
She's the one who now sees for herself and who determines what is good. And this is the pattern of sin throughout the whole of the Bible. It's the same pattern of sin that still operates within us. Eve saw and took and ate. And that's what we do too, isn't it? We play God. We become the reference point for all morality. We determine right for wrong for ourselves. We determine good and evil. We make our own plans. We chart our own course. We follow our own desires, just like everybody else does. We assert our independence and our individuality. We call down judgment and curses on anyone who gets in our way and on anybody who prevents our progress. But you see, we're captive to our own pleasures and desires. We're slaves now to our own foolish appetites. Do you remember what it is that God said? All this pain and suffering in the world, all that's wrong and broken with the world, all that's wrong and broken about us, all that's wrong with our neighbours, all that's wrong with our families, all that's wrong within our marriages is exactly what God said would happen when you eat of the tree, you will surely die. It's not that God isn't all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good. It's that we've broken relationship with him. Suddenly the Lord who walked with us in paradise is now the God we hide ourselves from. Once naked and unashamed, now we're ashamed of our own nakedness, fearful of being seen, afraid of being known. We're now afraid of being exposed. Look there, verse 8. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you he said I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself shame quickly turns to blame doesn't it and suddenly now it's everybody else's fault but theirs personal responsibility is quickly shirked as we look for someone else to wear our mistakes for us But the real shame here is we've overthrown a good and gracious king. That's the shame here. You've become usurpers of his authority. We are rebels in a rebellion of independence. We're like guerrillas and militia and freedom fighters in a war that costs us our freedom to begin with. God's creation is now in open rebellion against its very own creator. God's good order reduced to nothing more than chaos. Verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave me, gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. In Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us that God created man, that God created the woman that God created them both to rule over his creation. But in Genesis 3, everything is in now the reverse order. Sin turns God's good world upside down. Every one of these relationships now fractured. All of creation broken by the brokenness of our sin. Sin makes us three-time tragedies, said my lecturer at Bible College. Sin destroys our relationships with God. Sin destroys our relationships with one another. Sin destroys our relationship with creation. Adam blames God. Adam blames Eve. 
Eve blames the snake. And we blame everybody else and everything else and we take no responsibility for our own actions. Adam and Eve shared at the fruit together, friends. They both sinned. Both of them failed. But even if you want to hide from all of your responsibilities still, and if you're still trying to cover up your past mistakes, God will still hold his creation to account. God gave us paradise, friends. But paradise was lost. Look there, verse 23. The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which it was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned, every, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God closes the door on paradise. He closes the door on Eden. We've been kicked out of paradise, friends, eating ourselves out of house and home. God boots us out of the garden and then he calls in security because we ate of the wrong tree. Humanity has been excluded from the other. But this isn't just about Adam and Eve now, is it? Adam and Eve are our representatives. You see, we would have done exactly the same thing if it was us. The curses for their combined disobedience are now part and parcel of our everyday lives. Their failure impacts upon their children and it still impacts upon ours. Because isn't this your experience too? As the old saying goes, the apple never falls too far from the tree. Our lives have been punctuated by evil and suffering as well. Conflict and division and brokenness and frustration and separation. Our world racked with suffering. Our world riddled with fear. This is the world in which we live. Isn't it? The world that we wrestle to have control over is now a world that is in chaos and open rebellion. Welcome to life outside of the garden. All of us are a very long way from home. Now I'm not sure what's happened in your world this week. I don't know what's happened for all of you. I know what's going on for some of you. But I can almost guarantee that you're a long way from being in paradise. There's suffering and evil in the world because of our sin. Our world is broken because we broke it. It's not that God isn't loving that evil exists in the world. It's not that God isn't all-powerful or all-knowing and all-good. It's because we are none of these things. But we believe that we could be. And we believe the lie that we would be. And it's a lie that some of us are still swallowing and one that all of us have had to live with. We ate from the tree that we were told not to eat from. That is sin. It leads to separation from God. Because of our sin, God kicked us out of Eden. And friends, that is the pattern of exile that plays out throughout the rest of the Bible story. And so the rest of the story of the whole Bible is about how God's going to bring his people back home. How God deals with the problem of our sin. How does God deal with our problem of sin? Well, let's see how he does it. Luke 23, verse 39. 
one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Suddenly the serpent questioned God's authority in the garden and the sign now above his head reads, King of God's people, but still it's asked, isn't it? Are you not the Christ? Sin, it separates us from God. Sin brings death to us and that's what these three men are now facing. And all of us here are faced with a choice too. Will we continue to question God's authority? Will we continue to overthrow him as our king? Will we continue to believe the lies of self-deception that others have told us, that we tell ourselves? Or, like the other criminal on the cross, will you take ownership of your own rebellion? Will Will you admit that you're wrong and that your wrongdoing deserves death? Friends, our world is broken because we broke it. And some of our relationships are broken. Marriage can be tough. Relationships are hard. Work is difficult. Church can be awkward. Sickness is uncomfortable. Death is simply devastating. We are a long way from home. Don't you want to come home? Don't you want to stop hiding everything that you've done? Don't you want to be free of the fear and the shame that you constantly carry around with you? Because when we recognise Jesus has a kingdom and when we ask Jesus to be our king, well, listen for yourself what he says to us in verse 48. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. The Greek word is paradesis. It's the same word used to describe Eden. Jesus' death reopens paradise for us. Jesus' death brings us back to God. The cross of Christ deals with death. The cross answers the problem of evil. The cross provides access to everlasting life that was cut off from us. Jesus suffers for the evilness of our sin. It was our sin that separated him from God. Paradise now regained and reopened for anyone asking Jesus to be their king. Friends, we're a long way from home and I'm pretty sure I don't need to convince you of the existence of evil And I'm fairly convinced I don't need to prove to you the presence of suffering. But I want to remind you that this present moment that you are in right now, whatever it is, isn't the end of the story. Brokenness, sin, shame, failure and fear don't have to be the final word in your story either. Because God is bringing his people home. Romans 8 verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. 
no matter how painful the present moment is that you're in. It's not the end of the story that God is now telling. And he invites you to come home. Let's pray. Father, wherever we are on our journey, whether we be a long, long way from home or just feeling the effects of sin and suffering and a world of evil, we want to thank you for your promise that we will be with you in paradise. That you are a God who restores and renews and makes all things new. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would make all things new in us the difficulty of our jobs, the problems within our marriages, the complexities of relationships and family, the boringness of the humdrum and the monotonous. Lord, would you make us new? Would you stir within us the desire that you created to be in relationship with you and to pursue the intimacy that you invite us now to in your son? We pray that we'd stop trying to make life work but rather we'd come and find our rest and our delight in you, our creator and our king. We want to thank you for your grace that we don't deserve. That although our sin deserves death and separation, your son faced death and separation for us so that we could be restored with you. So restore us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Give us new hearts that beat for you. Help us to pursue you over all things. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.